portions from chapter 32, verses 3 through 6, 9 through 16, and then from chapter 33, verses 1 to 11, and 16 to 20. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He instructed them, This is what you are to say to my lord Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys and sheep and goats, male and female servants. Now I am sending this message to my lord that I might find favor in your eyes. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you, and four hundred men are with him. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, Go back to your country and relatives, and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers and their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper, and I will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. He spent the night there, and from what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 yams, 30 female camels and their young, 40 cows and 10 bulls, and 20 female donkeys and two male donkeys. He put them in the care of his servants, each herd by itself, and he said to his servants, go ahead of me, and keep some space between the herds. Jacob looked up, and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two female servants. He put the female servants and their children in front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. He himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Then Esau looked up and saw the women and children. Who are these with you? he asked. Jacob answered, They are the children God has graciously given your servant. Then the female servants and their children approached and bowed down. Next Leah and her children came and bowed down. Last of all, came Joseph and Rachel, and they too bowed down. Esau asked, What's the meaning of all these flocks and herds I met? To find favor in your eyes, my lord, he said. But Esau said, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. No, please, said Jacob. If I have found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me. For to see your face is like seeing the face of God now that you have received me favorably. Please accept the present that was brought to you, for God has been gracious to me, and I have all I need. And because Jacob insisted, Esau accepted. So that day, Esau started on his way back to Seir. 
Jacob, however, went to Succoth, where he built a place for himself and made shelters for the livestock. That is why the place is called Succoth. After Jacob came from Paddan Aram, he arrived at the city of Shechem in Canaan and camped within the site of the city. For a hundred pieces of silver, he bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, the plot of ground where he pitched his tent. There he set up an altar, and he called it Elohi Israel, El Elohi Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Wendy. We're continuing uh, now in our series on the life of Jacob, the highs and the lows of this well-known patriarch in the Old Testament, the book of Genesis. And we're coming upon a a wonderful, beautiful, uh, and complex story. And so as we turn our attention towards it, let's pray and ask for God's help. Let's pray together. Lord, we are so grateful for this time Uh, for these words, this narrative, this life that you've given to us, that we might learn from him, Jacob, learn from your word, learn from you. God, we expect much from you because you say your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. So pierce our hearts with good news and with the truth of conviction. Send your spirit. Help us to see Jesus change our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. In 2014, New York Times photographer Peter Hugo went down to southern Rwanda 20 years after the genocide that took the lives of nearly one million people in only about 100 days. This photographer Hugo's aim was to capture snapshots, images of forgiveness and reconciliation that were surprisingly taking place over these last two decades between the Hutus and the Tutsis, the two ethnic groups that were involved in the Rwandan genocide. Recently, I came across one of those photographs in this photo essay, which you can find online, find it for yourself. It's one of Godefroid Mudaharanwa, a Hutu perpetrator, an Ivasta Mukanyandwi, a Tutsi survivor, both, I believe, presently in their 60s. You look at this picture, they're standing side by side in an open field, only a few inches separating the two of them, both staring intensely into the camera with lines of age and hardship still etched in their faces. Twenty years earlier, he had burned down her house, and in his own words, I attacked her in order to kill her and her children, but God protected them and they escaped. After being released from jail, he served some time for his crimes, He would run and hide whenever he saw her around town. And then after a process of of months of mediation, work, and counseling, he formally requested her forgiveness. I used to hate him, she explains. When he came to my house, 
and knelt down before me and asked for forgiveness, I was moved by his sincerity. Now, if I cry for help, she says, he comes to rescue me. When I face any issue, I call him. Looking at the photo of these two, which again you can find online, there's no evidence of what you might describe as warmth between them. And yet there they are, together. We're moved by stories like these, by portraits of forgiveness and healing like this. I think if we're honest, at times we're intimidated by them. Maybe you felt that already. They feel out of reach, these stories. Maybe even unrealistic. Sometimes we're skeptical. At other times, we're inspired by them. Maybe you felt this too. They give us hope, even for our own relationships, and hope for our broken world. We notice the unlikely and even rare beauty. We long for it for ourselves and for others. Today's story from Genesis chapters 32 and 33, it's a story about reconciliation, the repair of broken relationships, the, the process by which two individuals or groups or even nations who've been torn apart by past sin or evil can be restored to a place of peace. 20 years earlier, at this point in the story, Jacob had utterly ruined his relationship with his twin brother Esau. We read about that several weeks ago. He took advantage of him, exploited him, took his brother's birthright, motivated by greed and self-interest. He lied, cheated, even stole Esau's blessing, the inheritance that rightly belonged to the firstborn son of the family. That was Esau, not Jacob. Jacob took it from him. Now wounded and full of honestly understandable rage, Esau vowed to kill Jacob. And so Jacob has been on the run ever since, estranged from his brother and his family and scared for his life. And that backdrop is what makes this scene in Genesis 33 so moving, so breathtaking. We saw it in verse 4. Esau does what? Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him and they wept. Reconciliation. One author called this scene one of the most gripping displays of merciful human love recorded for us in the scriptures. Many readers have actually noticed the parallels of this story with Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, in which the compassionate father saw his wayward son at a distance, dropped everything, pulled up his 
clothing, ran to him, threw his arms around him, and kissed him as Jesus depicts for us the compassion of God himself, our heavenly father, as he receives his wayward children back in his home. Some people have wondered if Jesus might have actually based that famous parable of his on this exchange between Jacob and Esau. Of course, it's easy to focus only on this one isolated moment of, of tearful embrace, as if it just arose out of nowhere. It's easy to assume that this happened in an instant. Yes, we hear the gospel's call, be reconciled to one another. We hear Jesus' blessing, blessed are the peacemakers. But true reconciliation never happens in an instant. So I want to ask Jacob and Esau, that tearful embrace, that kissing moment, that reconciliation, how did we get here? How did we get here? And when we ask that question, we begin to notice, even in our passage today, what you might call six movements, actually seven. Seven movements in this story towards healing and reconciliation. And they are choosing peace, facing fear, owning the damage, accepting responsibility, rebuilding trust, renouncing control, embracing imperfection, and finding power. Let's run through each of those. Seven of them, we better get going. Number one, choosing peace. Choosing peace. Did you notice that Jacob in the story, actually in the beginning, seeks out Esau, the one whom he harmed. Jacob chooses reconciliation. As we saw in chapter 31, he departed from Laban's house with his family, his livestock. Now he's heading home, but he realizes that he's passing by where his brother now lives. And he could have avoided him could have just slipped past unnoticed, maybe as many of us would have done. But he stops. He sends messengers. He wants to work things out. It's the first time we've seen any indication that Jacob actually acknowledges his wrong. Something has moved him, even pricked his conscience. Maybe it's the fact that he's heading home, thinking about what lies ahead. Maybe it's the goodness of God that he experienced in being delivered from Laban and departing with loads of blessing that Jacob himself acknowledges came from the hand of a generous God. But he decides nonetheless to stop running away. So here's the first movement in the story. Movement toward. Like Jacob, we need to move towards those we've injured and wronged. Some of us here even this morning need to stop running from the wounds that you've created. Stop the caravan. Choose peace. Secondly, facing fear. Choosing peace, facing fear. Jacob is terrified. We see that. Loud and clear, you better believe he was. He was scared. And for good reason. Again, last he knew, 
Esau wanted to kill him out of vengeance. And I think it's important for us to say it's okay in such circumstances to be afraid. Reconciliation is hard. It is threatening to face those whom you harm, hurt. The question is not are you afraid, what will you do with those fears? Jacob faces his fears. He brings his fears to God in prayer. Pastor Yancey taught us about this last week, looking at that part of the passage. He confesses his fears honestly before God. Verse 11, I am afraid Esau will come and attack me. He prays for protection. Sure, save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau. He recites and remembers God's promise to bless him and his family. Will you today name the fear of confronting wrongs that you have done in hurting other people? maybe even those close to you? Will you bring those fears before God in prayer? After a night of, of wrestling, Jacob emerges yeah, still afraid. There are so many things he can't control, but a little bit more courageous. Keep in mind, you know, courage isn't being fearless, having no fear at all. Courage, rather, is doing the right thing even when you're afraid. Facing fear. Thirdly, owning the damage. Owning the damage. We're told in chapter 33, verse 1, Jacob looked up, and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. Esau's coming. He doesn't look happy, right? He's coming to meet Jacob with an armed militia, or so it looks like. Is it payback time? What's about to happen? Or is he just being cautious? Maybe he's unsure of Jacob's intentions. At this point in the story, we actually don't know. And Jacob certainly doesn't know. No clue. But it sure looks like his worst nightmare is about to come true. But Jacob stands Firm. He organizes his family, preparing them for a, a possible attack. And then verse 3 says the most amazing thing about Jacob. He himself went on ahead. What does that mean? Jacob quietly steps out in front of his family. He's not hiding behind him, them. He's, he's going to take the first hit. He's ready for it. He knows he might die. See, this isn't simply courage. This is Jacob accepting responsibility for his past sins. This is Jacob accepting the consequences of his selfishness, his greed, his disinheriting of his brother and treating him like trash. Jacob is saying, I'll take the hits if the hits do come. See, because a lot of the time, we, we want peace in our relationships. 
but we want the lasting damage that we've caused just to go away or to be ignored or, hey, can't we just move past those things? True reconciliation does not whitewash our sins or the consequences of our sins. Here is Jacob showing us how to confess in effect, yes, it was that bad. Yes, it is that bad, the lasting consequences of what I did. You're not wrong to be this hurt. You're not wrong to be that mad. Jacob is ready to own the damage, the ruptured relationship, his part in it, and its aftermath. Jacob is ready. Are we? Are we? Fourthly, rebuilding trust. Rebuilding trust. Now, even before Jacob and Esau meet face to face, Jacob does something kind of strange. You heard it in the reading. He tells his messengers to, to bring gifts to Esau, lots of them, in fact. Bring gifts to Esau in advance of their encounter. The passage uses different Hebrew words to describe these. Gift, present, a word that means tribute. And then later in chapter 33, verse 8, Jacob tells Esau that the purpose of this gift was to aid, help the healing of their relationship. He says, it's to find favor in your eyes, my Lord. Now, some people have criticized Jacob's gift-giving here as, as sort of a manipulative attempt at appeasing Esau, almost like he's sort of putting out a bribe, right? Just trying to placate him. But I think there's a better way of reading Jacob's actions and intentions. I think he knows that after all he's done to exploit and disinherit his brother, at this point, mere talk is cheap. I think he knows that words alone, coming from a serial deceiver, no less, would have little to no credibility with the wounded. That's why Esau comes to Jacob almost with an army, right? That's what hurt people do. Why would they expect otherwise? So Jacob, I think, is trying to slowly rebuild trust, which is precisely what's been decimated by his past wrongs. Friends, sometimes, Generous deeds need to precede words in order to reestablish trust in broken relationships. Deeds of, of kindness, of integrity, of generosity, of goodwill, blessing in the face of curse. Show them, don't just tell them that you're sorry. Show them that you're trustworthy, and don't be surprised if it takes time for them to believe you, because the rebuilding of trust takes time. Now, before moving off this point, I want to point out two things about this peculiar gift. First, notice the enormous size of Jacob's present to Esau. Chapter 32, verse 14 tells us, gives us a list, 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 
30 female camels with their young, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, 10 male donkeys, for a grand total of over 550 animals. I mean, that's like not a small farm, right? Some have actually estimated, I honestly have no clue how they came up with this estimate, but I've seen it, that the modern-day value of this gift would be something like half a million dollars. So this isn't Jacob just bringing his brother a bouquet of flowers. Relatedly, notice this. It's worth noticing that these gifts are also described in this passage, not just as gift, present, tribute, but also with the language of atonement in chapter 32, verse 20. And even more strikingly, in verse 11 of chapter 33, as a blessing. Jacob says to Esau, please accept the blessing that was brought to you, for God has been gracious to me. So what's going on here? Jacob appears to be giving back to Esau a portion of the material blessing that he stole from Esau. He's giving to him something that Esau should have had due to him as the firstborn of this family. In other words, Jacob is making amends. He's offering restitution. Alan Ross, in his commentary around this passage, says they may find it proper to make restitution for past wrongs, not in order to appease an enemy, but as witness to the faith in God's working in our lives. One vital way that we move forward in reconciliation and establishing trust with those whom we've harmed is by committing to making amends, even material amends, restoring what you have taken. This is a vital part of trust building. This is why in the project of racial reconciliation, there seems to be an important component, as we've talked about in the past, a place for reparations or corporate restitution, where things that have been sinfully taken across generations, across segments of society, thefts that have occurred against the black community against the native community that are now owed back to them in repayment and compensation, restoring truth, restoring power, restoring wealth. My point here is simply to say it's by making amends that we're not paying down a debt merely, but we're rebuilding trust, material trust, by showing the status of a heart in ways that can be measured. I see your contrition right here. I see your humility right here. I see the desire of your heart more than words. I see it in your giving. This is the goal. This is what's required. Sometimes making amends, restitution as a co-requisite of reconciliation. The process of rebuilding trust. Choosing peace, facing fear, owning damage, rebuilding trust. Fifth, renouncing control. In chapter 33, verse 3, we're told this. He himself, that's Jacob, went on ahead and bowed to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. Numerous times, 
Jacob refers himself to himself to Esau, not as, hey, bro, you know, it's just me, little. No, your servant, my Lord. Jacob prostrates himself before Esau. He submits himself, in fact, to Esau in his words and in his posture. See, reconciliation isn't just a, a transaction, neither of words nor of just an exchange of goods. It is a giving of one's whole self to the person. I'm yours. Jacob renounces control of the relationship. He makes himself vulnerable. Friends, reconciliation is impossible, impossible when you're proud. When you insist on being strong, when you retain rights, when you manage outcomes, or you use words to control the other person's response. In fact, even in my own marriage, one of the things that I've most been having to learn in reconciliation and conflict growth in marriage is giving Paula room to be appropriately upset. Just being okay with the fact that she is angry. Again, this relates to what I was saying before, what we were seeing before in this whole point about owning the damage, where it's like, of course you are upset by the ways that I have hurt you or wronged you or sinned against you. Pride makes you want to control people's reactions makes you want to say, no, you can't say that or go there. When you know that you have sinned, when you confess, you are putting yourself all the way to the ground, literally in Jacob's case, bowing seven times, saying, I am yours. The text doesn't describe it. I'm sure there were words exchanged between Jacob and Esau as they wept and as they embraced words of confession and tears of of repentance and of forgiveness. And Esau doesn't just forgive, he even extends kindness. Later on, we see that he even offers his own men to go along with Jacob, right? I mean, it's incredible, the generosity of Esau, not just forgive, but hey, what my, what's mine is yours. You took from me, but not only am I going to say it's okay, I'm actually going to give even more to you. The generosity of God reflected even through flawed Esau. Here we are, weakened, broken, not reciting a script, but humbling ourselves before God, before the person or the community whom we've injured. Because to reconcile requires vulnerability and risk. Are we willing to go there because of love? Do you know a love that went there for you? The Christ who took all risks to die for you who made himself infinitely vulnerable, subjecting himself to all pain and suffering and loss for you, for me, because of love. Six, number six, embracing imperfection. Uh, I want to make sure before we finish up that you notice how this story ends. Verse 16, so that day Esau started on his way back to Seir. Jacob, however, went to Succoth. Hey, you mean you're not going to like, you know, moving together, hang out, happy family? 
Listen, Jacob and Esau do not go home together happily ever after. See, their reconciliation is real. It's a real step. But full and complete trust apparently is not yet restored, at least not in a single sentimental moment. Again, rebuilding trust takes time. One commentator said, the very warmth of the welcome brought a new danger of false partnership. Joyce Baldwin, wonderful Old Testament commentator, says it was important not to overestimate their compatibility. Say they needed to recognize and they would soon remember that all the people involved in the project of reconciliation are still going to be sinners, are are still going to be liable to hurt one another. In fact, Jacob does right here. He's a changed man, wrestles with God, transformed by God's grace, and yet, right here, he deceives Esau again. We didn't read it in our reading, but in verse 14, he actually tells Esau, go ahead of us, and we're going to meet you and say, here. Esau goes, and then Jacob goes another way, doesn't keep his word again. Look, we might reconcile. We might even take a real step towards reconciliation. There might be real healing. And yet we're still sinners. And yet it's still incomplete. And yet we're called to step forward in faith while at the same time embracing imperfection in our reconciliation this side of heaven. And, of course, there are situations when reconciliation perhaps should not happen. When the person remains hardened, unrepentant. When the other person is a present danger to your safety. Look, Christ calls us to forgive as we have been forgiven by him. And Christ often gives us power to forgive, even in the hardest situations. But he calls us sometimes to do that unilaterally, one way, even if the other person remains unremorseful, unrepentant. That's forgiveness, but full reconciliation. Hey, it takes two to tango there. It's different. It requires the reestablish of safety and trust to call someone no longer an enemy and now a friend. Reconciliation, see, is, is messy by definition when it involves flawed broken and sinful people like you and me. Oftentimes it involves a long process. Sometimes it requires mediation. Always it requires the power of God. And this is what I want to finish up on. I mean, how do you do this? Where do you get this power, this inner spiritual strength to move through this process of healing? Where do you get the spiritual power to reconcile? I mean, we need to acknowledge that we are desperate for healed relationships. We don't know how to do this, but we desperately want it, yet we have no idea where to turn. Earlier this week, I was at a local bookstore, was browsing through some books together with my daughter, and just out of curiosity, went over to the Wicca section, wanted to see what witches and witchcraft uh, writings were about these days, and I found this one book called Witchcraft Therapy, And a a section that was called a page, actually, I mean, list of different potions and spells and such, right? 
I mean, this is dead serious stuff, right? People with an earnest heart and desire to find some way to access something outside of themselves or within themselves to know how to forgive and reconcile, right? A page that I found called A Forgiveness Spell. That involved a piece of paper, a pen, an ice cube tray, water, potted plant, or a patch of dirt outside. Now, my point here really is not to mock, because I know the authors of this were sincere, and maybe this is the story of some of you as well. But listen, piece of paper, pen, ice cube tray, potted plant, patch of dirt outside, I know my cold and angry heart needs more than that. I need God, don't you? I need true power for reconciliation, which is found only in the mercy of God. You want to be a reconciler? Have you encountered a reconciling God? Jacob did. You say where? I say check out chapter 33, verse 10, when he says to Esau, to see your face is like seeing the face of God now that you've received me favorably. To see your face is like seeing the face of God. In other words, your face drained of anger, your face now erased of all wrath is almost like seeing another face that that I seem to recall that I've recently seen, the face of God, also drained of anger, only filled with mercy and kindness. But Jacob is saying, hey, Esau, when I saw your face and saw the tears streaming from your eyes, when I saw your softened countenance, when I saw your acceptance and reconciling love, what I saw was something that I was reminded of, which was the look on God's face, his reconciling love, for me. You say, well, when did Jacob see this on God's face? The answer is, just the night before. If you remember, Jacob wrestled with God all night. He confessed in verse 30 of chapter 2, after wrestling with God, I saw God face to face and yet my life was spared. I saw a God who was mighty. I, I, I deserved to be destroyed. I, I, I've treated him like an enemy, and, and yet he did not judge me, punish me, cast me away. He embraced me, loved me, reconciled himself to me. Jacob knew he deserved God's judgment. He knew he had been unimaginably evil, resistant towards God and towards his brother, and yet he also knew that God had been unimaginably kind to him, not only withholding judgment from him and forgiving him, but also pouring out undeserved blessing and kindness upon him. I mean, he's got all the cattle and the donkeys and the all of that to show for the blessing of God. It's why he prayed the night before in verse 10, I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. Jacob knew God had given him the gift of reconciliation. God had made peace with him. God had received Jacob into God's presence, not just as a forgiven enemy, but as a friend, and not just as a friend, but as a son. As a son. Jacob knew that he had been reconciled to God. Jacob had seen something of a glimpse of God. That was the power for Jacob, and that is the power that you and I 
also me. The power of Christ, seeing him dying on the cross for you, rising again with reconciling glory, bringing you into his family as a beloved child, not only forgiving your sins, but extending to you friendship and kindness and generosity because the power to reconcile with others starts with knowing that God himself has reconciled himself to you, the chief of sinners. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And he said, this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the love of the Father that Jesus told us that he was bringing us into. The Father extending arms wide open and, and tears streaming from his face with reconciling love. This is the power of Jacob, the power of the gospel, the power of your God that can make weak and cowardly people like us, running away people like us, bold as lions, willing to own and embrace the wrongs that we've done, willing to be on the project of rebuilding trust, willing to lay all things down like our Savior did for us and come on in with readiness to reconcile, to confess, repent, and forgive. God alone can give us power for this. You know what kind of power it is, too? Jacob wasn't activated like a superhero, flexing his way towards his twin brother. You know Esau ran to meet Jacob. That's what the text says, right? Esau ran. Jacob didn't. He couldn't. He had a limp. Remember that? Jacob wrestled with God the night before. God blessed him, touched his hip, and gave him a limp that he would remember that it's in your weakness that my power is made perfect. Jacob's encounter with God, with this reconciling God, left him with a limp. It still does. The power of the cross is limping power. Pride and self-control, self-assurance, I mean, fully broken down, bringing us into a place of full surrender to God, fully surrender to the one you hurt, fully surrender to the possibilities of the love of the cross. Friends, reconciliation only happens when we limp. At the end of the story, Jacob and his family arrive at the city of Shechem in Canaan. Finally, in Canaan, we're told that for 100 pieces of silver, Jacob bought a plot of ground in Canaan. He's finally home. He's made it back after 20 years of being away. And he finally is possessing a piece of the promised land, just as God promised he would. Beloved, reconciliation is a road to the promised land. Reconciliation offers us a foretaste of heaven. Let's pray.
We're asking, God, that you would please give us these little tastes of your reconciling grace in our lives. We need you. We're so weak and helpless, powerless without you. We want to limp towards you by your grace, limp towards each other with love, humility, confession, inviting the power of the reconciling Christ to dwell within us. So come, do this work in us, and do this for your glory that all people will see on our faces the very image of our reconciling God. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. And amen. Let's all stand and sing in response.